Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. It's a new year and that means it's time to learn some new things in this special on the brain. Well, first we find out how our brain manages to respond and react so quickly and save time. Plus, how our brains adjust for the changing rhythms and cycles of the day and what can be done about it. Plus, we find out just exactly why we have to add an extra second to the year. So 2016 is over, and 2017 has begun. And you may have had an interesting 2016. There was a lot of things going on in that year. But there's one thing we can say for certain about the year to come. And that is that 2017 will be bigger and better than 2016. Well, maybe not necessarily better, but certainly bigger. And why? Because, well, we're adding an extra leap second to the clock in 2017. That's right, when you count it down from... 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 on New Year's Eve, you should have been actually counting down. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 1. Happy New Year. And that's because the Coordinated Universal Time, UTC, the world clock, which are actually governed and set through atomic measure, actually have to keep adding additional seconds every once in a while. And the reason we need to do this is because of the Earth's change in rotation through space over time. Because this generally shifts and moves. And in order to keep up, we actually need to be subtly adjusting the clock. Not every year, but pretty frequently. Now, in 1970, through a series of international agreements, we basically established universal time, coordinated universal time, UTC, which is based around UT1, a measure of Earth's rotation angle in space. And since then, the International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service, IERS, which is the organization that monitors the difference between time scales, as in the general overall time and the UTC time, keeps track of these two things. So it tracks UTC and the International Atomic Time, which is the, the cl- they're basically the big atomic clocks that we have. And since 1972, we've had to add an additional 26 leap seconds uh, at varying intervals from six months to seven years. Uh, with the most recent being inserted on June 30, 2015. Uh, Which means the cumulative difference between UTC and total atomic time over the period since 1972 is about 37 seconds. Now, it's not like the Earth has stopped rotating or is rotating faster. It's basically to do with the calculation difference between these two measures. Basically, the Earth, when compared to the atomic clock tick, it runs a little bit slow, so much so that this builds up over a period of time. Roughly around 500 to 750 days, they get out of sync. Which is okay, uh, just as long as that we note that and adjust for it. And why is this important? Well, we need to set our clocks, not only for our computers and our smartphones and our alarms, but that extra second of delay means a lot to the GPS system and a bunch of other very precise measurements that we use this incredibly detailed times for. So... Now that we've added that extra second, we can leap in to the next year with certainty about the exact second each event takes place. Well, 
Well, now that it's a new year, we have to learn new things. And when you learn new things, your brain has to react very, very quickly. It needs to adapt, store, and process all this information in a very short period of time. And when you think about it, the brain's just a big computer. So when you want to copy and learn something really complex, your brain has to sort of do a lot of processing. And if you ever had a computer try to process a very large file, you know that that little swirly wheel can take a long time, varying lengths of time even. And how do our brains manage to learn things and react so quickly? It's something that we refer to as brain plasticity, the ability of our brain to process new stimuli and respond to them in a very, very short period of time. Because without that, we're going to be really struggling to keep up not just in learning, but also in everyday life. So researchers from the University of Basel in Switzerland, uh, their Biozentrum section, uh, facility, which has been led by Professor Peter Schieferle, have been studying how the brain actually stores RNA molecules and makes copies of DNA, and how they manage to do that so quickly. Now, Neurons in your brain store RNA molecules. RNA is basically DNA gene copies, to want to be really, really specific about it. Um, and these, when you have a brain that's learning something new, you need to be able to rapidly produce and store these proteins. And how we do that has always been a little bit of a mystery. So to study this, we need to understand how we manage to build up a stock of RNA uh, so quickly that really have the exact thing we need for that particular process. So RNA molecules effectively serve as the blueprints for new proteins. Uh, and we need to be able to have some type of stimulus come in, and then the RNA needs to be processed to produce the right proteins for the right response. And that's pretty much you know how it works. So you need to have some sort of bank of RNA available to you know get the right stimulus and the right protein out at the right time. And the problem is that the process of RNA synthesis or DNA copying is very, very slow, especially for really large and complicated genes. So that if something comes in and you have this message coming in saying, hey, we need this, it can take a lot of time to build and construct that specific RNA molecule to produce the protein that you need to respond to it. Uh, it's like filling an order. If you don't have it there ready, it can take some time to make, in fact, hours. And that's just not good enough for the fast reactions that our body needs. And so scientists were wondering how on earth the brain manages to cope with this. Because obviously you can't store a stockpile of all possible RNA for all possible stimulus that you might need. There's just not enough space. So the way in which it works that they've discovered, this research is from Biozentrum at the University of Basel, um, basically is that RNA blueprints are stored everywhere. And in, in generally what the process is, is they basically firstly make a basic copy of the DNA that they need. And then from this copy, individual sections, which they call introns, are uh, subsequently cut out and put in with RNA splice, basically, the new segments in to make the standard model the customized model that you want. That's effectively how the RNA proteins are built. Now, when the neurostimuli trigger comes in, so the signal from the brain saying, hey, we need this, they then need to fill that order. And what Peter Schiffler and his team at the University of Basel discovered is that Instead of having or to start from scratch each time, which would take hours, the brain's actually pre-built a lot of these immature, what they call RNA molecules. They're not fully finalized, but they're, you know, 80% of the way there. And they basically build up a bank and stockpile of them. So that long, slow process is already done. 
Then all they need to do is splice in the appropriate things to customize that model to exactly what your brain has asked for. And that enables them to produce the exact right RNA for that task in a very, very quick amount of time. To think of it of another way, basically your brain has pre-batched cooked most of this and then it's just deciding on the sources or the extra ingredients to add into that mix. So the long prepared time items have already done and they can just quickly splice and customize. And this is incredible and our brain is doing all of this to speed up the production of proteins that we need to react really, really quickly and overall save us time. So this is some great work being done out of the University of Basel about how our brains manage to react and respond so quickly. And it has a lot of common with our approach for fast food, which just goes to show that great minds think alike. When you travel, one of the toughest things to deal with, particularly international travel, is jet lag. And that's the phenomenon of changing time zones and having your body still be trying to uh, be asleep at uh, 11 a.m. in the morning because back home, it's the middle of the night. And this problem besets anyone who's traveled internationally, travels a lot or travels for work. And even just the shift from daylight savings to non-daylight savings times can introduce a little bit of jet lag where you're sort of moving behind the clock and we've been studying this area of the brain for a long period of time because we, we don't really understand why which it works we know that there's the circadian rhythm the ebb and flow of the day and night cycle and how your body reacts to it but it's always been a, a bit of a puzzle exactly how it works in humans and other mammals because it's an important thing for regulation of sleep and alertness which is important for all life but we don't really quite have a grasp of how exactly it works and what areas of the brain control it until now. Researchers from John Hopkins Medicine Group uh, in the United States have been studying this, in particular led by Seth Blackshaw, who is a professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins University, um, who's been looking at this in mice and studying exactly the region of the brain that's responsible for it. And, you know, it's a few thousand cells. It's not a lot. But it has a very, very important job to do. And for the first time in pub paper that will be published in the current biology, they've isolated this corner of the brain and have a really good understanding of how it's connected to the overall clock and cycles in our body, particularly in mice, that governs things such as sleep and temperature cycles throughout the day. And seeing how just how much influence just this little area of the brain can have on this important bodily function. So what they've managed to identify as we know sort of from our own experience and from some studies is that light plays a key role in the regulation of sleep. When there's light present, we don't generally go to sleep, but if there's not light presence, we will. And that's just something that's hard-coded into our bodies and our brains. And in particular, what they've learnt is that the SCN, is this portion of the brain, is required for light to regulate sleep. So it's not the only part of the puzzle here, but it's the important one that ties light into the sleep cycle which is and 
For a while, they've been doing experiments on animals uh, involving the SCM, but it's quite hard, as with all neuroscience, to study something in action. I mean, they did know that if you surgically removed the SCN portion of the mice brain, um, then their sleeping and, and, and waking was no longer influenced by light. So, hey, that's great, but you've also had to do a pretty invasive test to do to prove that. Um, now, but if you don't remove the SCM, what can you do? Well, you can basically shine light straighten that optic nerve and see if that has the same impact. But the challenge is that when you take out the SCN, you actually have to take away that optic nerve, and so you can't really isolate things there. So those are experiments done years ago by Blackshaw and his team, and they're sort of trying to build on that since then. So by isolating the genes in the mice, that actually lead to the creation of the normal functioning SCN portion of the mouse brain the mice hypothalamus. By limiting the genes for that production for that area, they're able to make mice without the SCN that's working. Uh, so that without this corner of the brain that ties light to sleep function. And so they bred a whole series of mice without this LHX1 gene. And what that meant is that they had a way to, without damaging or seriously impeding the mice normal brain function or optic nerves to actually test this idea of connection between light and sleep. So what they found while testing these mice with LHX1, which is basically the mice brain without this SCN region functioning, which means the, the ability to turn light signals into sleep signals, they found that the mouse and the mice tested actually experienced severely disrupted circadian rhythms. They had a very weak synchronization to light cycles. So basically, if you had some light presence in an on-off cycle like normal, they'd have a very weak response to when you changed it and shifted it. But overall, generally, they... They found that the SCN was no longer produced the small six signal proteins, which are generally sent out uh, to help coordinate the sleep cycle. Now, when the mice were kept in constant light or constant darkness or normal cycles of both, the sleep cycles and times and duration became random. Now, overall, they slept for the same amount of time, about 12 hours in each 24-hour period, just like normal mice. But there was no pattern. There was no cycle to this behavior, which is really, really fascinating. So what that showed is that the SCN is, is kind of the region of the brain is, is critical to some type of cyclical, cyclical nature of the rhythm inside the mice's brain. And without it, it sort of throws the whole thing out of whack. Now, there's another little cycle in our body aside from the sleep cycle, and that is the cycle of body temperatures. Now, overall, yes, we may have somewhere around 37 degrees plus minus one or two degrees, uh, depending on who you are, and also the time of the day. So your body has a temperature cycle, and in mice, it's highest in the afternoon and lowest just before dawn. And this natural ebb and flow of the temperature cycle is another part of the bodily cycles that we have in place every day to sort of function. And these temperature fluctuations have a big increase and big influence on the various other functions inside the brain, such as glucose usage and fat storage. It's sort of part of how the whole overall cycle does. And the SCN region of the brain actually has uh, some interaction with this temperature cycle as well. So given that they these researchers now had access to mice without the LHX1 gene, uh, or basically with a SCN downplayed or removed portion of the brain, they tried to see if they could now interact with this heat cycle as well. And what they found is that they were able to reset this heat cycle 
by and basically re-trigger it by show, exposing the, the animals to pulses of heat. Um, so generally, normally your body is like, if there's a change in temperature and heat, maybe it's hot, maybe you have a fever, it does impact the overall circadian rhythm of your heat. The hot, uh, the coolest in the, in the just before dawn and the hottest in the day. Um, instead, by pulsing it, you're able to actually reset that cycle and adjust it if the SCN portion of the brain was off, effectively what they've done with this mice study. So that means that there is a connection between the SCN and not only governing sleep cycle, but also other important time-based cycles in your body, such as temperature. So that goes to show that, at least in mice and potentially in humans, that the SCN portion of the brain is actually super critical for controlling all sorts of rhythms inside our body, which help lead to everyday life. And hopefully that may lead to treatments for jet lag in the future, such as you know maybe briefly blocking the LHX1 uh, gene so that uh, you could reset or repulse uh, your clock if you need to. And that might help a lot of those people struggling with jet lag. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week you found out how our brain manages to learn things quickly with a production line style approach and how our circadian rhythm is adjusted and controlled by the SCN region of our brain. Plus, there's some additional seconds of the year. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.